0: This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia? Howard?
1: What are we thinking about on today's episode?
0: Well, we should talk about some OB emergency, the bread and butter, but things that are maybe sometimes common and sometimes less common that are really worth reviewing every so often so that we hit them perfectly whenever they do happen. So this might end up being more than one part. We'll see. But yeah, that'll be the main thing for today. But first, what's the thing we do for no reason?
1: Okay, well, how about cutting a tight nuchal cord at the perineum before you deliver the rest of the baby?
0: Okay, so you mean when the fetal head is out, but there's a tight cord around the neck, wrapped maybe once or twice or three times. And instead of either reducing the cord, so manually just unwinding it around the head, or delivering the baby just with that cord around its neck, you mean that the OB or midwife would go ahead and put clamps while the cord is still around the neck and cut it and then deliver the baby?
1: Yeah. And I've seen this done and and it's come up a lot. In this issue of optimal or delayed cord clamping, because obviously if you cut the cord right at the perineum, then you won't have an opportunity, the baby won't have an opportunity to receive that minute plus of time for optimal cord clamping. And ironically, in that particular situation where there's been a really tight nuchal cord or two or three, and the baby may have some relative hypovolemia, imagine they've been having variable decelerations during the last stages there because of that tight nuchal cord, Well, that's the very newborn who's hypovolemic who might benefit the most from delayed or optimal cord clamping so that blood volume can be restored.
0: I've really only seen this done once in my training that I can remember, and I know I didn't like it, but I get that it's an uncomfortable situation regardless when there's a nuchal cord and you're trying to get the baby out, especially if the cord seems to be on a lot of tension and you're not sure how much slack there is inside. So I guess maybe I understand the intent, but I've usually either been able to reduce the cord over the head if it's not that tight or just continue to let the baby come out all the way and then manually unwind the cord from around the neck after that. But I suppose if neither of those maneuvers seemed possible because of maybe tension, it seems like the cord is too tight and too short to allow for either of those things, then maybe that's a way people try to avoid cord avulsion. I have also heard of that happening once with a colleague and sounded like it was pretty jarring. And thankfully in that case, there was a whole pediatric team immediately and they helped secure the bleeding from the baby's umbilicus. But I'm not even sure if it was a nuchal cord situation or if it was just a really short cord that that avulsed. So I still think clamping and cutting the cord when it's still wrapped around the neck and you've only got the head out, well, maybe it's preferable to avulsing if it had to come between one of those two things, but I doubt that's really the choice that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I think that's not the choice either. I've also seen, I didn't do this delivery, but I observed it where there was a nuchal cord or two and the resident tried to reduce the cord over the head and avulsed the cord internally from the umbilical stump, and then had a two-minute shoulder dystocia. So the evulsion happens, then the shoulder dystocia happens. So you can imagine that that was a very difficult situation for the resuscitation of the baby. So partly from that experience that I saw in training, and just now 4,000 deliveries later, not ever seeing the need of it, I just deliver through basically all of these cords. I don't really ever attempt to reduce the cord either over the head until the baby is out. So I was trying to think about if I ever cut a cord, and I don't think I have, I, but I won't say that confidently. Maybe, maybe I've done that. I'm trying. Maybe I'm inventing it in my mind. But maybe there was a time when it was just really tight. And there was three or four cords. I think I might have done it one time. But again, that's out of like four thousand deliveries, where almost always my practice is just to deliver through the cord and not even re- try to reduce it over the head. As you said, you should be able to just deliver the baby, and then as the baby comes out, you can do what's called a somersault maneuver where you keep the head right next to the perineum and start to gently unwind the cord from the neck without pulling it any tighter, even as the rest of the baby's born or after the baby's born, and not worry about it until then. So you can reduce the cord over the head, but I think that if you can reduce the cord over the head, you probably can deliver through it. That's the thing. If it has enough slack to reduce it. So I think that the reducing of the cord is probably what causes avulsions. And then if you've ever seen an evulsion from a reduction then maybe you think you should just cut the cord, not realizing again that you can just deliver through it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's my experience as well. I didn't think it was even routinely taught that we should be clamping a nuchal cord right at the maternal perineum. And it seems risky because when we clamp, we're cutting off the blood supply before we even know if there's going to be a shoulder dystocia. So really, is that any better than, that's that's not much better than avulsing and going into a shoulder dystocia either. And also clamping and cutting something that's really tight against the baby's neck really also seems risky, especially if if you're doing it in a hurry.
1: Well, I think that this process of clamping the cord of the perineum probably happens more than we might expect it to. And I've run into that, again, from feedback from hospitals that are working on optimal cord clamping. So I think it's just another, again, one of those things that until you stop doing it and just learn to deliver the babies and use a somersault maneuver that you don't realize it's unnecessary. If you've done it for a lot of tight nuchal cords over the years, you probably think it's something that you have to do. So I think this is one of those things that we talked about in the last episode that I like to call the Roger Bannister four minute mile phenomenon, where until something can be done or that you don't have to do something or whatever, you just find it hard to believe that it's the case that you don't have to do it or whatever. We talked about that in context of dissecting the rectus sheath at the time of cesarean. But again, my interest in it is it's an excuse that I hear now from obstetricians or midwives for not doing delayed cord clamping because if you cut the cords, you can't do it. But I'll put a link to an article that describes the somersault maneuver and the management of nuchal cords at delivery that hopefully will encourage you to just try to use that maneuver exclusively.
0: Well, speaking of delayed cord clamping, another thing we were talking about previously was that people were concerned of the risk of maternal hemorrhage, whether at vaginal delivery or especially cesarean, where the uterine incision might be bleeding while we're still waiting to clamp the cord. But there are some new studies on that just this month, December 2022, that go a long way to clear this up. So there's a new randomized control trial that found no difference in maternal hemoglobin after vaginal delivery, when women were randomized to optimal cord clamping versus immediate clamping. And another new study this month that included 733 women actually found a decreased estimated blood loss with the optimal cord clamping, and that was with cesarean. And then a third study this month looked at both vaginal and cesarean deliveries in preterm infants and again found no difference in the maternal blood count. So this has been a very active topic of study lately. And I wonder, does that even make physiologic sense that there could be less blood loss at the time of cesarean if you wait to clamp the cord
1: Well, I think it does make sense. I mean, first of all, it's not like we're just sitting there watching the incision bleed. If there's a pumper or something, we're putting pressure on it or a hemostat or a clamp or something. But by allowing the uterus to begin its physiologic process of contracting down while the placenta is still attached, as it does in the case of a vaginal delivery, I think we are likely decreasing the blood loss due to atony. In other words, if we just rip the placenta right out of the uterus, right after the baby's out, those spiral arteries are immediately severed, and the uterus really hasn't had any time to catch up. It's not contracting. It's not cutting those spiral vessels off, so they bleed more. But on the other hand, if the uterus is allowed to begin to contract down, and that's aiding in the physiologic process of placental separation, and do that for a minute or so while you're giving the baby the optimal cord clamping time, then those spiral arteries are going to be under some increased pressure from the intramyometrial contractile pressure. Before the placenta is removed. So, I actually think this is true and it makes some physiologic sense, even though it might seem counterintuitive.
0: All right. So, I guess those hospitals really are running out of excuses not to have delayed cord clamping for a full minute. And it also just goes to show the power of narrative fallacies because it's really easy to convince yourself that one minute at the time of caesarean will lead to an increase in hemorrhages when the clinical evidence is saying the exact opposite. And so now, speaking of hemorrhage, we are going to talk about a few obstetric emergencies today and just verbally rehearse some definitive management strategies to get ourselves out of trouble when trouble happens. You always say we should think about these rare events at least once a year, which I agree with. So I guess let's start 2023 off with a bang.
1: Okay, yeah. And I do think that the idea of like, just saying to yourself, if you do this for a living, saying to yourself, just quickly, how do I get out of any bad situation? What Go through the line of what can I definitively do and how quickly do I need to do it for a hemorrhage, a shoulder dystocia, an amniotic fluid embolism, a deceleration, a cord prolapse, whatever emergencies scare you, like what is the definitive thing that I can do and know how to do it? Uterine inversion, whatever then I think that you approach things with a lot more confidence. I used to like when interns were delivering babies of just a simple low-risk patient, I used to like to go up right as the baby was crowning and whisper in their ear for them to tell me 10 steps that they would do in order for a shoulder dystocia. And that's the kind of thought process I think you have to have with all these sorts of emergencies. You need to know this stuff kind of cold and be able to respond in a calculated manner when you see it.
0: Yeah, like that really is the whole reason we're there is in case something like that happens. That's right. So let's start off with hemorrhage. That one probably everyone in obstetrics has seen multiple times. And our goal here is not to go into too much detail with each of these, but just to have in mind some highlights of some definitive management strategies.
1: Yeah. And in a lot of these, and especially for hemorrhage, I'll say that it's so true that an ounce of prevention is well worth a pound of cure for many of these things. And postpartum hemorrhage is definitely one where I think prevention is available and almost always works.
0: Okay. So without too much detail, let's do this. What are some preventative measures we should be thinking about?
1: Well, first of all, we should be identifying patients who are at particular risk of hemorrhage. Most risk stratification guidelines will have some pretty comprehensive lists of patient factors and pregnancy or labor factors to consider here. I will say there's a recent review of these sort of risk stratification guidelines, or several have been developed, and none of them have been found to be effective or really better than the other one. So I'm not suggesting that you have to have a particular checklist or anything like that. But in your mind, clearly know that some people have a much greater risk than others do. So folks with prior postpartum hemorrhage, pre-existing bleeding disorders or anticoagulant use, people who are are at risk of bad outcomes because they already are starting out with chronic anemia, morbidly obese patients who may not respond as well to oxytocin or uterotonic drugs, extensive prior surgical histories. And then pregnancy things, obviously things that distend the uterus like macrosomia or multiples or polyhydramnios or fibroids, particularly if you're doing a cesarean. And then clearly placental issues like invasive placental diseases, placenta previa, placenta accreta, etc. And then things that happen during the labor, long time, long labors, long pushing times, prolonged and high doses of oxytocin exposure, and infection, chorioamunitis. Secondarily, after you've thought about risk stratification, then everybody needs to be prepared, and unit preparedness to deal with a hemorrhage is very important. Units should rehearse hemorrhage scenarios at least yearly, and I think that's a joint commission requirement now. And obviously, you should have a massive transfusion protocol in place, which takes into account what your unit and hospital can do and what you have available. And a hemorrhage kit or a hemorrhage cart should be available. And then, thirdly, it should have a goal to have a uterotonic agent, which in this country is usually oxytocin, infusing as soon as the delivery of the neonatal head occurs. Even before the shoulder's out, the nurses should be clicking that pitocin on as soon as the head is coming out. And this should be universal, and it's important, should be recognized, and as I said, We should do it as soon as the baby's head is out. I think that this is often one of the things that's done incorrectly, where many midwives or obstetricians give it either after delivery of the baby completely or after delivery of the placenta. But the goal is to start it as soon as that head is coming out. Now, people can send me emails if they want for some of the things that we're going to say today that they don't like or want our explanations for, but we're just trying to be efficient with our time. And we might get some on this issue of when to start the oxytocin. I think that so far that's going to be the point of contention. And we can talk more about that later if people are interested. But this is a thing that the World Health Organization says is one of the primary things that can save women's lives. We're spoiled in the United States and don't see the hundreds of women a week who die around the world of hemorrhage that could be completely avoided by having a routine uterotonic on board. And I'll add that if someone has a, one of the risk factors that we mentioned, like a previous postpartum hemorrhage or a prolonged labor or something, then going ahead and prophylactically adding a second uterotonic, I think, is a good idea. And there's a lot of literature that doesn't, again, tell you exactly which risk factors should institute that. But there's clearly literature that says that Pitocin plus another is beneficial in reducing blood loss in people with risk factors. And then when that baby's out, a vigorous massage of the uterine fundus after the delivery of the placenta is essential. And I don't think that a lot of people do a very good job of what I'm calling vigorous massage either.
0: I'll say anecdotally, in my training, I had a couple attendings that would say this new oxytocin immediately is making the lower uterine segment clamp around the placenta and we're having these delayed placental de- deliveries. And when I started looking at the clock where there would be a delivery, I, it was the same. Because I I thought that too. I thought like, yeah, why is this placenta so hard to extract? But it didn't have have any association with the timing of the oxytocin.
1: Yeah, I think you can tell, probably predict the decade in which a person trained if they have that belief. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because seriously, so what we did in the 70s pretty routinely was we gave it before the placenta was delivered, after the baby was born or while the baby was being born. And then- in the late 70s and early 80s, a lot of the literature started having that concern. Are we seeing more retained placentas due to this? And so there was a little bit of a backlash in the 80s about that. And, and people were blaming the oxytocin every time they noticed a retained placenta, which are relatively unusual events themselves. But then in the 90s, we clarified that with the literature that it wasn't responsible for it. And in the 2000s, we've shored that up. So yeah, there's it's just a, not an evidence based belief.
0: Okay. Well, let's move on. So let's say we've appropriately risk stratified our patient, and we've given that uterotonic or two up front, but our patient still hemorrhages. So let's just go through the thought process and the tools available to deal with this. It's important, I think, to treat a postpartum hemorrhage as a critical event, like a code, rather than just as a diagnosis necessarily, because we don't always know the precise cause of the hemorrhage while we're in the midst of dealing with it. Just as with another type of code, like a cardiac arrest, we might not know the cause of the cardiac arrest while we're running that code blue. So we're often treating this event while thinking about the differential diagnosis for hemorrhage. And it's also important to remember that just because you believe the hemorrhage is due to one thing and you think it's pretty obvious, let's say it's atony, that doesn't mean that really is the only thing going on and there's no other contributing processes as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I always like the mnemonic, the four T's, if you've heard that for postpartum hemorrhage. So those are tone, tissue, trauma, and thrombin. Although I think some people might say tears instead of trauma. And you're exactly right. I'm thinking about all four of these areas in the differential diagnosis spontaneously while treating the active bleeding So tone is supposed to make you think of the most common cause of postpartum hemorrhage, which is uterine atony. Tissue should make you think of either retained placenta or even just buildup of blood clots, which is the effect of distending the uterine cavity and preventing it from contracting down fully to put the appropriate amount of pressure on those spiral arteries. Trauma should make us think of tears that could be bleeding, which could be anything from vaginal or vulvar tears to high vaginal or, of course, cervical lacerations and even uterine tears, even uterine rupture. And thrombin should make us think of both acquired and congenital bleeding disorders like DIC or von Willebrand's disease or hemophilia, for example. And you could have all four of these present at one time. So maybe a patient has acne, and that acne might be due to retained placenta or clot, and the clot might be from a bleeding ruptured uterine scar, and the volume of bleeding might lead eventually to a consumptive coagulopathy as these bleeding factors are used up, and that leads to DIC.
0: You're going to give the listeners nightmares with stuff like that.
1: Yeah, well, Merry Christmas. But it's better to have the nightmares now and think about that than to have them in real time.
0: Better a, a fake, like an imaginary hypothetical nightmare than a real one. Okay, well, we should add to your quick differential things like abnormally adherent placenta, like placenta accreta, and also uterine inversion, which we'll talk about more in a minute you could think of accreta as the ultimate retained tissue, except that you can't treat it the same way as you would treat retained tissue, which that you do manual evacuation or curatage. If you do that in the setting of accreta, you'll just precipitate even more bleeding. So anyway, let's go on with the management. So most postpartum hemorrhages are due to uterine atony. So the initial management of hemorrhage should start with medications, the uterotonics, In most cases, there should already be a high-dose bolus of oxytocin running, as we said, after the baby's head comes out. If there isn't an IV in place, then this can also be given intramuscular. And even if there is an IV, then if we're in a hemorrhage, we should be heavily considering getting a second one in that's large enough to rapidly infuse blood products. So now, beyond oxytocin, the other common medical agents for atony are methergine, 0.2 milligrams IM every two hours, hemabate, 0.25 milligrams IM or intramyometrial during cesarean. And that one can be given up to every 15 minutes for up to eight doses. And then of course there is still mesoprostol, 600 to 1,000 micrograms orally or sublingual or rectally just once. So just some points on each of these. Methogen is a vasoconstrictor, and so it's contraindicated in patients with hypertension or other, or other disorders like Raynaud's. And hemabate is a potent prostaglandin agonist that causes smooth muscle contractions. So it can cause bronchospasm. So it's contraindicated in asthmatic patients. And it also will cause some pretty significant diarrhea.
1: Yeah, and those medicines, along with very vigorous uterine massage, are going to fix most problems, and they're going to do it relatively quickly. We can note here that the mesoprostol works seemingly more slowly than the rest, so it's not really a first-line agent for a lot of folks in acute hemorrhage situation, though you can make a cost analysis benefit that it should be first because it's so much cheaper. And I will say one thing about the mesoprostol is if you're putting it in, don't use gel That's people's tendency, but the gel will create a film over it and slow the absorption or even eliminate the absorption from the capsules. And it's uncertain how much added benefit it provides if you're already using other agents and then you throw this in as well. I also find that many people... As I said, don't do the uterine massage with enough vigor. And in a hemorrhage like this, I'll do bimanual massage where I have one hand vaginally and the other hand abdominally, basically compressing the uterus between my hands. The other thing to keep in mind is that it takes at least a few minutes for these medications to have any impact, regardless of which one you're using. In the real world, you're going to have to continue the massage until the medicines are working, which can be several minutes. Time for the nurse to get the medicine, time to administer it, and time for it to become available to the uterus. So the other mistake I see is that people massage for, say, 30 seconds or so. The uterus firms up and then they quit. Then she starts to bleed again. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes the initial massage fixes things. If she's staying atonic to the point that you're giving medicines, you probably need to continue your massage for several minutes. And this is also a sign that your problem is acne, because if she stops bleeding while you're doing massage, your problem's acne. So it's a great diagnostic tool to have available in real time as well.
0: Okay. And so if we're massaging the uterus, compressing it, and we're giving these medications, and we're still not seeing a response, but we're still convinced that it is acne, then we can tamponade the uterus as well. So this can be done with a balloon device like a Bakri, which inside the cavity inflates up to 500 milliliters of saline. Or there's another similar device called the Ebb, EBB, uterine tamponade system, which is like a double balloon catheter, but otherwise it's pretty much the same idea as Bakri. And then there's the Jada intrauterine vacuum device. And all of these are things that you would want to rehearse how to use that specific device before you actually have to use it. And before we had any of these things on the market, people would just put in several Foley catheters, each 60 mils. Or pack the uterus with a bunch of gauze that's soaked in thrombin and
1: yeah, well, I was gonna say yeah, and those are still things to think about that not everybody has devices available.
0: Yeah, and I remember so I know that in in really the worst kind of hemorrhages, that let's say that you're in a cesarean or you've taken their taken her to the OR, a trauma surgeon would cross clamp the aorta, but. In a vaginal delivery situation, you can put manual pressure above the uterus and downwards to, to block the, some of that blood flow from coming down. So it's just that right thing to consider.
1: Well, you can do that. You can do that after vaginal delivery, and you can also do it at the time of cesarean. You don't need a trauma, to a surgeon to necessarily cross clamp it. You can put your hand up and fill the aorta, and you can put pressure against it while you're waiting on everybody to catch up. So don't feel bad about doing that for several minutes while you're waiting on supplies, blood products, sutures, help, whatever it is that you might need. So it's a great thing to keep in the back of your head that you can stop bleeding pretty definitively if you can put pressure on the aorta. And before you've gotten to any of those devices, I'd also say that if the patient isn't responding to uterotonics... We should be asking a couple of questions here. First, does she have retained placenta or blood clots in the uterus that are making it hard for these medicines to work? So by this point, I will have done a bedside ultrasound to look for retained placenta or clot and either manually evacuated it, as you said, or used a banjo curette to evacuate any material, usually with ultrasound guidance. That's often the reason why the drugs aren't working. And secondly, we need to be looking for other causes of hemorrhage like a cervical laceration or something that's bleeding that we're missing but attributing the blood incorrectly to atony. And these cervical lacerations are the ones most commonly misattributed because you look in and the blood's coming from up high. But it's just coming from a cervical laceration. In the worst cases of hemorrhages that you'll see, and I've reviewed several of these cases over the years, it's usually a case of misdiagnosis where the team has persistently been treating atony but missed the cervical laceration or the uterine rupture that tore into the uterine artery or the other real cause of the bleeding. Now, I know I've said this before, but in my own experience, in over 4,000 deliveries, I've n- never had to use any of those devices, the Bakri, the Jada, or the Ebb, or anything like that. And that's not to say that I've not had severe hemorrhages. I've had them. But I've had to do peripartum hysterectomy many times, in fact. But in my opinion, in those cases, none of those devices would have saved the patient from hysterectomy. They weren't done for acne. I don't believe I've ever done one for acne. Several were for invasive placental diseases, things like that, but not for acne. So I think that I've done compressive sutures, which we can talk about too for atony, but I've never had to use those devices. And so I do think that the point I'm only making is that if you're doing vigorous massage, you're making sure the uterus is empty and you're using your drugs in in good protocol, then you may not need those devices. And I do believe, as I've said before, that because these devices are being commercially sold and made available and emphasized as they should be in situ simulation and things like that, so you can learn how to use them, that people may be going to them too quickly in their algorithm.
0: Yeah, that's probably right. So yeah, so we're always thinking about working through that differential diagnosis while we're treating and actively managing the hemorrhage. And that would include looking for DIC. So if uterotonics, massage, removing tissue, throwing stitches in any lacerations we've found still doesn't control the bleeding, then we can still perform a laparotomy if we're not already there, place those uterine compression sutures or vascular ligations, and obviously we can do a hysterectomy. And in some cases, if it's a really slow bleed and the patient is essentially stable and you have the ability, you can also send them to radiology for uterine artery embolization. But I think we have to be very cautious with this option. I have had it actually come in very handy before, but I think it's a rare case where that ends up being the scenario and that ends up being the better option than anything else. Because like I said, the patient has to be stable or else you're potentially sending them down to code in the radiology suite.
1: Yeah. Maybe someone that you've already finished operatively on and particularly with surgical type bleeds, but yeah. She's still bleeding a little bit more than you like, but stable enough to send down, then urinary embolization can be helpful, but obviously it's not an answer to an emergency code-like situation that we're imagining. And I've certainly done all of the surgical choices that you mentioned just now more than once in my career. I've not used urinary embolization for this particular reason. Now, the O'Leary sutures are the most common vascular ligation. These are just bilateral uterine artery ligations. You can also suture across the uterovarian ligaments and essentially get all four major arterial supplies of the uterus. And surprisingly, maybe, women can still get pregnant and have pregnancies after you've done this. They don't have the same success rates as women who've not had all four major blood vessels to the uterus lig- ligated, but they often can still get pregnant and have successful pregnancies. So it's better than a hysterectomy. But because of that, it certainly shouldn't be your initial surgical approach. But for surgically related bleeding after you've had a cesarean, sometimes this is a great option rather than a hysterectomy and can preserve their fertility. People used to do a lot more internal iliac hypogastric artery ligations in the past, and I've done those as well. But it's technically very difficult to do if you don't have a lot of experience operating there. And it actually doesn't work as well as we once thought it did. So most people have moved away from that in favor of O'Leary sutures. And I'm not sure that a lot of obstetricians who coming out of training more recently, are comfortable doing that ligation in a safe way. There's a lot of different compressive sutures available. I think I've read an article once where five or six different patterns were described. But I do think the B. Lynch, which is a man's name, B. Lynch, is the most common one and the one that most people know. And it's the one that I've employed. The goal of these sutures is just to use a large suture and compress the uterus together as if you were squeezing it in your hands from front to back and top to bottom. And I've used this for persistent acne after a cesarean, where you've given drugs, you've massaged, you just can't get it to firm up. And it's sitting right there, so just ask for a suture and do it. And then obviously, as you said, hysterectomy would be the final definitive intervention. And hopefully is rarely, if ever, used, as I said, for acne alone. But definitely something that you need to feel comfortable doing and more commonly used for invasive placenta or post-surgical things that are just persistently bleeding and you can't fix it.
0: Okay. So that's a whole lot about atony. So let's talk about one of the other T's. Let's do trauma. The difficulty with this sometimes is visualizing the cervix or even just the upper vagina. And sometimes the best thing to do really is take the patient to the OR, make sure they're really comfortable and you have really good lighting and all the retractors you need so that you can do a really thorough examination if the bleeding is continuing, and then use that setting to either repair or pack as necessary. And at some point, we're giving blood products during all of this. Of course, we can give crystalloids immediately, but if the hemorrhage is significant and ongoing, then we're going to need to activate the massive transfusion protocol, or at least get some emergency release on cross-matched blood, depending on how things work at your particular hospital. You can usually get uncross-matched O-negative blood within 10 minutes, hopefully. And that blood can be given with a rapid infuser, and most operating rooms or trauma services have that. But your L&D nurses may or may not know how to use it. They may not know, especially if you don't practice this stuff ahead of time and frequently enough. So massive transfusion protocols do vary, but usually they consist of something like six units of packed red cells with four units of fresh frozen plasma, FFP, and a unit of platelets, maybe a unit of cryoprecipitate. And then obviously that can all be repeated as necessary.
1: Yeah. The other thing we haven't mentioned that we're seeing a lot of literature about a lot of interest now more today than in past years is tranexamic acid. I think this definitely adds something to the patient that we're worried about having a really massive hemorrhage, but it's also rarely necessary for most simple postpartum hemorrhages that are due to atony. But if you've got ongoing bleeding and you're certainly not sure of the cause of it and things like that, then tranexamic acid is a great tool available. And the dose is a gram IV over 10 minutes. And you can actually repeat that in 30 minutes.
0: Yeah, I think that's just an easy one to add in, and there's pretty much, there's essentially no harm. So I personally have a pretty low threshold to ask for it. Another important thing to remember is to ask for help, like to ask for other people there early. So that comes in the form of extra nurses, extra colleagues maybe even a gynecologic oncologist or a general or trauma surgeon can be helpful depending on the situation and anesthesia of course is immensely help- helpful when they're managing blood products and pressors and things like that if these if those become needed and then of course lab lab studies useful labs up front would be CBC chem panel But those probably won't direct your immediate transfusion needs because it will take some time for that blood loss to equilibrate into the accurate blood count number. And fibrinogen level coagulation studies, those can also be helpful to look for pre-existing or consumptive coagulopathies. And we probably can't spend too much time on this topic right now, but since hysterectomy is the most definitive solution and you've done a fair number of them. Do you have any quick tips about postpartum or cesarean hysterectomy?
1: I think my tips would be just this. Don't be intimidated by it. They're actually not that hard, but people mythologize them a little bit and make it sound like something super scary. The biggest mistake people make, I think, is waiting too long to do one. So... Mm -hmm. If you're already doing this on a patient who's being coded, you've probably made the decision a little late. And when you do one, use an energy sealing device like the ligature impact makes a huge difference. You can secure all the major blood vessels to the uterus in three or four minutes if you're using energy sealing device. And then you can take your time with the more difficult dissection around the cervix and the bladder and things like that. But the ligature or whatever energy device you have allows you to really get control of everything very rapidly.
0: All right. Well, let's quickly hit uterine inversion. So this is a rare but catastrophic problem. And as many as one in three women who had uterine inversions died from it in some case series. So this occurs when the uterus inverts and it turns inside out with the fundus going completely outside of the cervix, like a sock being rolled inside out. And oftentimes the placenta is already partially or completely detached at that point, but the uterus can't contract down. And so this organ that's getting 20% of the maternal cardiac output is left to just bleed freely at the placental site.
1: Yeah, this is a real emergency. And you should have the sort of cadence and timing and pressure of a shoulder dystocia in terms of thinking, I just have two or three minutes to save a person's life here. So all the things that we've already talked about in terms of postpartum hemorrhage, preparedness and our massive transfusion protocols and that extra large-bore IV and the help and all those things are very necessary in many cases of uterine inversion. But quick and definitive action here hopefully can make most of those things unneeded. First of all, don't separate the placenta if it hasn't already separated keeping those vessels intact between the uterus and the placenta is key if you can leave it on there. Second, stop the Pitocin if it's running. Consider having nitroglycerin available and giving it 200 milligrams IV nitroglycerin. Just remember that'll help the uterus relax. This is also helpful, by the way, if you ever have to do a Zavinelli maneuver. And so again, just something your unit should have available for emergencies and you should know the dose. It should be on your emergency card or immediately available. You could also give 0.25 milligrams of turbutylene sub-Q if you don't have nitroglycerin available, but the nitroglycerin definitely works much better. And then you have to manually reduce the inversion. You do this by first cupping the inverted fundus with your hand supinated and using quite a bit of force, you push it back through the cervix. And once you get it past that point of the cervix, you make your hand into a fist until you've fully pushed the uterus all the way back up into its normal place. This is called the Johnson's Maneuver. There are others, but this is what most people advocate for. Now, I've done this, I think, three times, and it takes quite a bit of force and strength. Of course, you may have just given nitroglycerin after you've before you've done this, so now you've got the uterus back in place, and now you need to quickly give uterotonics, like oxytocin at least, to get the uterus to contract back into form and be careful with your uterine massage that you don't push it back down.
0: That sounds easy enough, but what if that doesn't work? There... Aren't, there are a couple surgical options available, right? The Huntington or the Haltane procedure?
1: Yes. And fortunately, I've not done either of these, though I've been prepared to do a Huntington procedure on one patient who I was particularly struggling with. The Huntington procedure is the preferred procedure of the two because you don't have to incise the uterus to do it if it works. So you will go through a progression here. You do, of course, have to make a laparotomy emergently. You have to open the patient up. And then you basically try to grasp the round ligaments with Alice clamps and walk the uterus back up by replacing the clamps one after the other. And often you do this in combination with someone doing Johnson's maneuver. The first vaginal portion, your assistant may be trying to push while you are pulling up. Sometimes the cervix, though, is so constricted that it's not possible. And that's why we have the Haltane procedure. And here you just make a vertical incision on the posterior aspect of the uterus over this tight constricting band that will be very obvious to you that it's holding things down. And you cut it so that it relaxes. And then you pull it back up. And then you repair it. So it makes sense to try the Huntington procedure once you have the patient open. And then if it's not working, incise that constriction band and then repair it. And the reason why the posterior incision is preferred is because the anterior incision is right there. It's going to be right next to the bladder, and so it's going to be associated with bladder injury. You could make an anterior incision, though, if you had to.
0: Okay, well, that all sounds sufficiently scary. Is there anything we can do to prevent uterine inversion?
1: Prevention, yeah. So we didn't talk about prevention. There I think that these are rare enough events that we're not going to have a good literature basis to definitively say what does or does not prevent this or what are potential causes of it. But I would think of two things, though. It probably occurs less frequently with oxytocin being administered before delivery of the placenta, and having a hand press upwards on the uterus suprapubically while pulling on the placenta may help as well. This is called the Brant-Andrews maneuver or Brant-Andrews traction. And that's how normally we should deliver placentas. The other thing is, and this is a personal opinion of mine, is that we shouldn't have the mother, we shouldn't encourage her to push while delivering the placenta. So if you think about it, maternal pushing doesn't help delivery of the placenta in any way. She's not going to generate force where she needs to help this placenta basically come out of the vagina. But what it might do is encourage the fundus of the uterus to be pushed downward just at that moment when the placenta is simultaneously pulling down and away, and the uterus is distended, and that may pave the way for this uncontracted uterus to have this force applied from the top, maybe also from the placenta from below, and start an inversion happening. So I just can't think of any medical reason why it's helpful for the mother to push while delivering placenta. I never ask them to do that. They'll ask, should I push? And I say, no. But I do think theoretically, some number 1 in a thousand, one in 2,000 women or something, it could provide the impetus or the force needed to begin inverting the uterus while the placenta is being expelled. And in the same way, we really shouldn't be doing a creday maneuver where you put your hand up on top of the uterus and massage and push down while you're pulling the placenta out. That used to be commonly taught. But obviously that pressure on the top of the fundus is again going to create perhaps the beginnings of the inversion.
0: The only times I've really seen the uterus invert has been at the time of c-section, which that's not really the same thing as we-
1: easy to fix then,
0: yeah, yeah, but same thing happening through the vaginas is, is not as easy to fix. but let's switch emergencies. Let's do an impacted fetal head at the time of cesarean. we we've talked a little bit about this before. so that's another time where nitroglycerin, the two hundred megs iV might be useful. I think we talked about it. Last year on the podcast when we were talking about the fetal pillow, which is one management choice that is not necessarily better than the traditional push or pull techniques, especially reverse breech extraction. So the push technique is where is what we just call the vaginal hand, where there's an assistant that's pushing upwards with their hand on the baby's head, while at the same time the operator... Is pulling upwards on the shoulders, on the baby's shoulders, so that they get to a point where they can place their hand beneath the head through the hysterotomy and then complete the delivery. I'll say
1: about that too. I think that's maybe something that we don't explicitly teach how to do. So, what I've seen people do sometimes with the push from the vaginal hand is to use like the tips of two or three fingers and push the head but it should be the palm of the hand. They should try to cup the fetal head in their hand and purposely move the whole head up with their hand, not their fingers.
0: Yeah. And that can be tricky because sometimes the vaginal canal is narrow and they might feel like they're forced to really constrict their hand.
1: She's got a spinal or general anesthetic, so go for it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Don't be afraid. You don't want to put like a lot of pressure on just one small area on the baby's head can really harm them. So the pull technique is really either reverse breech extraction, which I think people are a little bit more familiar with, as opposed to the Pat Warden, which is like arms out and then work the baby's hips and breech out and then pull the head out last. But I'll just talk about the reverse breech extraction now. So that's where the operator puts their hand in the uterus, they go for the feet, and then they just pull them through the hysterotomy as if it was a breech delivery all along. And then that pulling usually is enough to pull the baby's head out of the impaction. But if it's really tightly impacted and there's a lot of friction and you can't get the head up out of the pelvis, so that can still be combined with an assistant pushing the fetal head up manually from below or using that fetal pillow if you have one. So anything else you have about this topic?
1: Well, I think that this topic is also just any difficult cesarean extraction, right? So it could be a baby that's rotating around or pushing around or things like that. So in general, for any difficult cesarean If the uterus is contracted down, again, nitroglycerin may be very. Anesthesia will have that on their cart and ready to give it. So if you've never done that with when you're struggling, think about it. And then obviously sometimes extending your incision is helpful. You can do this either with a J incision or an inverse T incision. I think the J incision makes more sense, and that's what I will attempt to do if I ever do it. But do whatever you have to do to get the baby out in a timely manner. If you need to tee all the way up to where you essentially have a classical incision, do it. If that's what you need to do in that situation, do it. And you can repair the uterus and clean up afterwards, but the point is to get that baby out of there. Some of the most difficult deliveries will be associated with a bandel's ring. So this is a constriction between the thicker upper contractile uterine segment and the thinner lower uterine segment. And it can trap the head beneath it. And you'll find these sometimes at the time of C-section after you've had this long obstructed labor because it's probably what led to the long obstructed labor to begin with. And cutting through this ring can be life-saving. This vertical incision, usually underneath the reflected bladder peritoneum, is called the osejo incision. And that incision is also done... At the time of uterine inversion, that's what the anterior incision would be that we talked about. But particularly if there is a bandle's ring present with a uterine inversion, which could be why you're in the OR trying to get it back up in there. So that too can, as I said, be risky. You might damage the bladder, but do it. Get the uterine inversion repaired. Get the baby out. You can fix whatever came of that later. Just get the baby
0: out. So many eponyms now. There's Credet, Johnson, Lynch. Savinelli, Huntington, Haltane, Bandle. Pat Warden. Pat Warden. And now, Osejo. I haven't heard of that one before. Is this you just working history into our emergencies discussion? And do you even know who that last guy, Osejo, was?
1: I do try to look these folks up because I am interested in the history of it. And I didn't mention, there's more we could do. I didn't mention the O'Sullivan technique for uterine inversion, which actually uses hydrostatic elevation of the uterine fundus, but that's not really appropriate for the emergent inversions we're talking about. I can't imagine me doing that in a life-saving maneuver. But yeah, Osejo, the best I can tell, I did try to find this out, the best I can tell is he was a Mexican gynecologist and apparently a vaginal surgeon of some repute who was active in publishing in the Spanish language literature in the 1950s. But that's about all I know about him. So maybe some of our Mexican listeners, if they know who he was, first initial was Jay, they can email us and tell us more about him.
0: Hopefully. Okay, let's do a different emergency. Let's do an easy one for a minute, cord prolapse. So this is usually identified by feeling or seeing a pulsating mass in the vagina. And then the nurse calls to tell you there's A prolonged fetal deceleration. This seems like one of the easiest emergencies we could pick. And if you feel the cord, then you just leave your hand in there, elevate the head off the cord so there's nothing compressing it, and you go straight to an emergency caesarean. And that this could include putting a catheter in the bladder. And I think one point of confusion is whether or not to backfill the bladder. So if you're not near an operating room, then elevating the head by backfilling the bladder with, you'd have to put a lot, like at least 500 mLs of fluid can be helpful. But if you're immediately on your way to the OR, both of those things are just going to make your cesarean more difficult and they won't really add to what you're already doing. And I also just want to throw in here that cord prolapse is a loop of cord coming out of the cervix, maybe even all the way out of the vagina. It's not something that you can just push Back in, but that's not the same as a funic presentation. A, a funic presentation is where you can feel that the cord in the uterus is between the baby's head and the cervix, but they're both, they're all still in the uterus. So that is not necessarily a stat section. I think some people, maybe especially in training, maybe don't know the difference and they feel a cord and they think, ah, oh, cord prolapse, let's section now. But if it's completely in the uterus, you can start by manually pushing that cord segment off to the side and observe. And then if it's normal, you've fixed the problem. So just just that little tidbit in there. Hopefully it helps somebody. And anything yeah, definitely don't about want to, cord prolapse?
1: Yeah, definitely don't confuse cord prolapse with a funic presentation. And I also think people have felt hands and stuff and thought that they were cords. Probably. If it's a cord, you can feel it pulsating. And, and some people will deliberately try to feel it pulsating to see what the heartbeat is on the way to the OR. And that's not crazy, but also don't compress it so much that you're oh gosh. like it shouldn't be you shouldn't be compressing it just because you're trying to see what the pulse is. The only other thing I'd point out is and this is a rare situation, but sometimes a cord prolapse can happen, but cesarean may not be the right answer. And that's if a patient is already completely dilated and is otherwise a candidate for operative vaginal delivery. So it has happened. It does happen. And an operative vaginal delivery is a choice. If she's plus three and there's a cord setting there that, you know, has worked its way down and, and you feel like that she's otherwise a candidate for operative delivery, you might even be able to reduce that cord out of the way or just do an operative delivery. I've definitely done that a couple of times.
0: Okay. Well, how about another one? How about breech vaginal delivery? I'm sure that's bound to happen to somebody this year.
1: Yeah, and I think that's another thing that we shouldn't be overly frightened by, but do need to be prepared for the possibility of head entrapment, which is really the scary part of a breech delivery. So one way to not be overly frightened by this is to practice our breech delivery techniques as often as possible. The two main opportunities for that are at the time of cesarean, but also at the time of second twins, where breech delivery should, if anything, be the norm and certainly something that we're not frightened of or discouraging. And obviously rehearsal with mannequins for these techniques is very helpful as well.
0: Okay, so some things some things to to have on hand. So an ultrasound is very handy if you're anticipating a breach. And this uh, this often will have that when we're doing a twin delivery and we want to see which way the second twin flips after the first one's out. Having the mother in a position really far down on the bed with The buttocks even hanging off is also advantageous, just helps the angle. And then a big thing that's different with breech delivery as compared to breech extraction is being very patient. So when we're in a twin situation and we're extracting the second twin vaginally, we're reaching up, grabbing the feet, pulling them down, pulling all the way out to the breech. But when it's a singleton, it's a breech delivery, we want to be as patient as possible and let the mother do all of the work until at least the umbilicus is out. And then we can help with the legs by splinting them and letting the legs bend and sweep out laterally.
1: It's called a pinard maneuver.
0: Okay, Mr. Eponym.
1: Just trying to help for the people who are going to Google image search what you're talking about.
0: Okay, sure. Well, So, after the legs are swept out, then we can help sweep the arms out the same way. And we can use rotation. Like we can rotate the whole fetal body and that helps sweep the arm across the chest. And then we can also splint with our finger if we need to and rotate the other way to do the same with the other arm. And you have to be careful about nuchal arms, which, like, it's like a nuchal cord. It's like their arms are up behind their head or almost trying to wrap around their the back of their neck. That will make the delivery very difficult. But if we're rotating the baby a wide angle, that can help reduce even a nuchal arm so that it's in a position to sweep across the front of their chest and without us causing any injury to their arms.
1: That's called the love sets maneuver.
0: Okay, gosh. Is there anything that's named after women or are these all just... Men with their names on different maneuvers.
1: Well, I'll find some stuff named after women for us on the okay. next episode, maybe.
0: Okay. Thanks. Okay. Well, anyway, once the arms are delivered by Lovset, however you say it, and he was be-
1: Norwegian, yeah. Jørgen, I think. Jørgen. Yer- you would know better than me.
0: It's the little o with the thing. Yeah. Okay. So once. The baby's head is looking down at the floor. Then you can, here's another eponym, you can perform the more so smelly vite maneuver. All and three I men. Can't believe they just couldn't decide. So
1: <laughs> They fought have, over it.
0: Have to call it by all three of them. Maybe we can just rename that. What about the Antonia maneuver?
1: Shorter and easier to spell.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, you place the baby's body, oh, drape, drape the baby over your arm. That lets you put... One, one of your fingers, your index and middle finger on either side of this baby's nose, or if you can't reach the nose, you could do the chin, just avoid the mouth, but you're pressing down ideally on the cheekbones. And then your other hand is pushing forward over their occiput, like the back of their head. And so your hands are working together to flex the baby's chin down towards their chest. And that helps. Get their head out.
1: Yeah, and the other thing to be careful about there is to not have the legs pulled up too high. You don't want to create too much of a bend in the neck. So there was a maneuver whose name I won't tell you that emphasized having the legs almost like up to the ceiling, and you do not want to do that. They should be relatively low and horizontal the body of the baby so that you don't over extend the neck. And if you're having difficulty with the head, you can also use Piper's forceps, another eponym. And though technically the Maristose Smelly Vite Maneuver doesn't require you to have an assistant, and that's one of the nice things about it, you're doing all the head flexion with your hands. It still is useful though, I think, to have an assistant apply suprapubic pressure while you're doing that to make sure that head is flexing. And if all else fails you can push the baby back up inside and go do a c-section. That's actually what the original Zavinelli maneuver was. In Zavinelli, his initial head replacement was not after a shoulder dystocia, but after a breach that he felt like he couldn't get the head out. It was later applied to the concept of shoulder dystocia. All of this is assuming, of course, that the baby's back is up and the chest is down, that the baby's looking down. If it happens to be turned the other way, there are maneuvers for that and You can Google the Prague Maneuver if you want more information about that, but also something you should be prepared for.
0: Yeah, obviously, one of the reasons that we don't routinely even teach breech deliveries or recommend them is because of that fear of the head entrapment. That's obviously it's really difficult to overcome, especially if it's an issue of bony, like the bones won't fit through the bones. So, yeah. Keep Savinelli in your mind if all else fails. So it is also possible that instead of a bony obstruction, the head is just stuck by the cervix. So maybe the cervix clamps down around the baby's neck. It's not dilated enough anymore to allow the head to pass. That also can lead to head entrapment. And this we can commonly see, especially with preterm babies who are breech and their bodies are still a lot skinnier than their heads. And if they're delivering rapidly through a cervix that isn't even all the way dilated, but then their head can't pass through, then you really have you have to cut the cervix. That's really your only option. And the best places to cut are at 10 and 2 o'clock to avoid some of those larger descending vessels, perhaps also at 6 o'clock. And that's called Dersin and another male eponym there. Yeah. I've only had to do this once. I think it actually went really well. That got the baby out quickly, the baby did well, and then cervix sewed, sewed it up with minimal bleeding. But obviously it's it has risks to it, of course.
1: Yeah. And usually the circumstance you're in is not ideal. I've had to do this a couple of times and the outcomes weren't very favorable, but these were with extreme premature infants in cases of mothers that you're hoping don't deliver. And then all of a sudden here's the delivery of a 23 or 24 week breech baby. And it can be difficult to repair, but again, worry about that later, get the baby out first. And just take a pair of scissors. These could be bandage scissors or straight scissors if you have to use them, whatever. And guide your finger up and place it between the cervix and the head so that you can get some separation and cut it. And cut it enough. Don't snip at it. Cut it so that, you know, the cervix is out of the way.
0: Okay, well, we still need to cover at least a few more things to, to really even have the basics. So shoulder dystocia, amniotic fluid embolism, eclamptic seizure probably cesarean under local. We should talk about that. Maybe a few other emergencies. So I guess we'll end this year with these emergencies that we've just finished talking about. And then we can start next year with those other ones.
1: And maybe in the next season, we should do like an eponyms episode and talk about some of these. I think the history is fascinating. And maybe we can find a few named after women, maybe an update on Oseho and just the pros and cons of continuing to use eponyms. I think that's an interesting conversation as well.
0: These are things to look forward to. So happy new year, everybody. Happy 2023. We'll see you on that side. So like always, the Thinking About OBGYN website will have links to what we talked about. And we'll be back next year. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe, look for new episodes every two weeks.